Hello and welcome to our latest episode of The Educators. I'm very, very delighted to welcome today Ali Durbin. Good morning, Ali. Hello. Hello. You're in Pinner this morning, I think, aren't you? I'm actually at home this morning, so uh, northwest London. Great, great. Well, Ali Durbin, thank you for joining us. Ali is the co-founder of Gesha School, who are really committed to engaging, empowering, educating our students who are maybe don't fit in to the mainstream with mild to moderate SEN, including autism, ADHD, dyslexia and Down syndrome. And as I'm sure you're aware, my name is Angela Fares. I'm founder of Full Circle Educational Consultancy, and we are committed to outstanding innovation uh, through inclusion or inclusion through innovation, whichever way you want to put it. And we are this series looking at talking to educators who are definitely doing things differently and are definitely succeeding. And I'm delighted to welcome Ali and had pleasure in, in visiting Ali's school a few weeks ago to have a look at how they were doing inclusion differently. Ali is a parent and co-founder of the Gesha and All Through School, which has been designed especially for children who are differently able and learn differently and has been awarded Ofsted Outstanding twice since it opened in 2017. Ali's journey from, as she puts it, exhausted SEND parent to founder of a thriving school community has transformed her into a ringleader for system-wide transformation. Ali currently chairs a SEND council for the Foundation of Education Development, which is creating a 10-year plan and vision for UK education. Ali also sits on the Education Council for the Autism Centre of Excellence. Um, Ali, absolute pleasure to welcome you today to this episode of The Educators. Thank you, Angela, for having me and also for taking the time to visit Gesha. Um, I think it was two weeks ago. What a fantastic school. I mean, I, I hope everybody listening knows my passion for PBL and my passion for inclusion and for ensuring that there are success paths for everybody. But I just wanted to kind of ask you to tell us in your own words a little bit about Gesha and engage, empower and educate and building on pupil strengths. Tell us your background and your involvement with Gesha and where it all started and where you are now. So I am the parent of a child who learns differently and who is differently able. My child had a very difficult time in primary school. It wasn't the right provision for him. And uh, he had a really tough time. It ended up damaging him, both in terms of the way he was taught his love of learning, the relationships he formed. And I think probably the way he kind of trusted the educational process, I would say, that that process of learning from adults. He ended up um, in a secondary school, which I always say kind of put, pulled him back together emotionally. And um, at the same time, um, I met my co-founder, Sarah Saltman, who had a child who was also differently able. And the conversation was, oh my goodness, and it was literally one of those ones, you know, in a, in a school playground. Look at what happened to your child. I don't want that to happen to mine. And we very kind of jokingly said, you know, oh, let's let's set up a school. You know, I was working in marketing. She was working in finance in the city at the time. And um, we're both Jewish. And we started looking at what was happening within our own community. We could see that there were 35 Jewish primary schools, but there wasn't one for this cohort of children. And when I talk about this cohort, I mean the cohort that sit just outside of mainstream, and I often call them square pegs in round holes. So they don't have profound and multiple learning disabilities. They will go on to lead um, or could go on to lead independent um, or interdependent lives um, if they have the right start in life with the right educational provision. 
and we started kind of digging into data. So looking at what's happening in Barnet, which is our, was our local authority at the time, um, looking at what was happening uh, further afield. And we could see that actually it wasn't just a problem within the Jewish community per se in terms of provision and scarcity of provision, but that actually our stories were multiplied thousands of times across the UK and actually across the globe. Um, in that this cohort of um, child was being failed by the education system and by the quality of education that they received within schools. And that's not a criticism on schools or on teachers. We know they work exceptionally hard to deliver what they need to do. It's just that no one has ever questioned that the time for system transformation is possibly now. I think maybe the pandemic highlighted it or that there is a different way, there may be a better way and different way of doing things. And so it's, it's fascinating, you're both non-educators and you came into this very complex yeah. world where there's so many different things to choose from. Where did you start with kind of getting your advice and where did your research take you, having had that initial kind of data research into what was available? So a lot of our research to begin with was hardcore data. So what was the need within Barnet? What was the biggest SEND need at the time? It was autism, um, followed by speech and language communication disorders. How did that play out across the country? What were the best interventions? Uh, what were the therapies that were on offer? And we started talking to parents. We started holding focus groups. We started talking to young people because it was really important that the voice that was at the center of everything that we were doing was, was authentic. Um, we spoke to therapists. And we spoke to a variety of educators and it became clear very quickly that, that there wasn't much. There'd been a ton of research by the Early Intervention Foundation, which proved that actually a therapeutic start in life could actually change the trajectory of these children. So it was kind of like, if we can see that therapy and a good, good, good high caliber education can actually change these children's trajectory, why is no one questioning what exists out there and why is no one doing things differently? And, and again, that's not to say that some schools don't do things well, but it just felt like nothing had been questioned for a long time and that people really did accept the status quo, which I think is a challenge of the system rather than of schools themselves, if that makes sense. Um, alongside that, we visited a ton of schools. We've probably visited over 40 or 50 schools now to kind of look at practice all over the UK. We also looked at schools abroad and we took the best of what we saw and we sat around a kitchen table and had many conversations deep into the night about what school meant, what we wanted in our heads for a child's experience to be at primary school and um, how it could be different. And I think at the beginning, we were very naive about it. We were like, oh, it will take a year and then we'll go back to our real lives. I, I don't think we kind of really appreciated what a complicated and complex system schooling and education is. And at that, that time, we weren't really looking at the system. We were just looking at primary education. So it was much more straightforward. And and now you are in a position where you have this fabulous school. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to walk into and to feel and you you feel as soon as you walk into it, it's something very different and it's doing things very differently. And you have your core values of caring for the world, showing gratitude, togetherness, kindness, perseverance. And it's very clear as you walk around the school, it's got a very clear vision, very clear values. We work um, as a consultancy with schools who are starting up. But what was the impetus for that? What was the drive to kind of 
have such a cohesive school that you can now see? So when we opened the primary school, it was very much about the best start in life, early intervention and, and, and therapeutic support. And I don't want to say in a way that was easy, but it was. When we took the decision to open the secondary school, we were faced with a different challenge. And that challenge was these children are growing into young adults. And as young adults and as 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 people responsible for their education were also responsible for shaping who they are and ensuring that the educational kind of provision that we ha- that we have, that the setting in which they're going to spend practically all of their day is one that um, supports them to be the best that they can possibly be, not just for themselves, but as valued and valuable members of society. So there was this big question of what does that look like? You know, how can we design a school that does that? And I think design is really the key word here um, because Gesha has been founded on design principles. And when you look at organisations outside of the educational market, there are many organisations that have been founded on a clear and very transparent set of principles that sit at the heart of everything that they do, at their culture, um, the way that they um, d- drive their business forward, their strategy and so, so on and so forth. But there are very few schools across the world who have really thought deeply about the outcomes that they want for their students and the principles that they're going to use to drive um, those outcomes forward. So in a similar way to when we set up the primary school, we horizon scanned um, schools all over the world. We work with an organization called um, the Innovation Unit, and um, we looked at schools in America, schools like High Tech High. We looked at schools in India. Um, There's a school called uh, Riverside, which is uh, a wonderful school. The the Green School in Bali, which I know, of course, you know. And um, we could see that there were schools doing incredible work. They all had um, very different ethoses at the heart of them, but they had a very clear idea of who they were and what they wanted for their students um, when they left school. And that was part of the question and also the solution that we um, were looking for when we went through this process. And we held in the process of kind of designing our secondary school a series of workshops So um, the workshops consisted of um, people from the world of work, because obviously work related learning experiences and um, adults um, who are differently able. We held a series of workshops and the workshops consisted of different strands of people. So we had employers, we had members from the Jewish community, we had um, a group of special schools, we had a group of mainstream schools and we had um, young people themselves. And we asked them all the same question. How could we do things differently? What works well? What doesn't work well? And what happens to our young people when they leave school and they're in your environment? So whether that's the workplace, whether that's within a local synagogue or something else within the local community, what are their challenges and what could we include within our or incorporate within our curriculum to ensure they have the right skills to be able to thrive outside of school and within mainstream life? And that kind of fed into our secondary curriculum and into um, what we call our design principles. And it's so clear. I mean, I, I remember going into a class and going, gosh, the colours are all the same and the kind of the typeface and everything kind of hangs together. And so you kind of feel like you're walking seamlessly through something that is incredibly well thought through and also at the same time gives you this sense. We all talk about well-being, but a sense of of place and a sense of belonging just through how the physical space hangs together. So before we get onto the kind of the curriculum and the therapies and everything else that you do, 
Tell me about the physical space and how that's evolved, because that was very striking for me as we walked through. Yeah, so um, that's really interesting that you picked up on that. The physical space is something we've thought about deeply. When you think about probably when you and I were at school, learning was very, very traditional. I'm not just talking about subjects sitting in silo, which I know we'll come on to in terms of project-based learning. But if you think about the design of the classroom, it's kind of desks all facing the teacher with a whiteboard or a traditional blackboard. And when you think about kind of how you exist within the works, your workspace, once you leave school, no one really sits in desks like that. No one really um, interacts like that. It's much more free flowing. There's opportunity to move. There's opportunity to have debate, to have discussion. There may be different areas within your workplace where you can reflect, where you can create where you can design, but very few schools reflect this. And on, on top of that, we know that with our children, sensory processing is a big part of what they need to navigate throughout the day. It has an impact on their learning. So the, the design of our physical spaces was as critical as the design of our curriculum. And uh, we work with two organizations. Initially, we work with an organization called Outends who are based in Denmark. And they partner with another organization who are based in the UK called um, Planning Learning Spaces. And what we've done is we've sat and we've looked at what happens in the classroom, the spaces that our children and young people need to thrive, how we can ensure that they have different types of spaces for different times of the day and for different emotions that they're feeling but also making sure that the quick, the equipment itself from a practical point of view can be moved around, can be broken down, can be built up so that spaces don't remain static. And I think whilst you saw the building, it's, it's obviously not complete because everything that you see at Gesher has been um, fundraised for, so we're still on that journey. But I hope that what you saw was, for example, if a, a child is having a really tough time, they can go and sit in a quiet corner and just take the time to um, distill um, or, or to regulate their emotions or any of the behaviours that they're feeling, that there are opportunities um, for them to come together and to interact and to collaborate and to talk. And equally, there are opportunities for them to um, have other learning experiences in the classroom. And that really is what sits at the heart of um, the physical spaces at the school. That ties in really nicely to the curriculum. So. There's always a lot of kind of um, controversy, I think, in this country anyway, around PBL and how the what your outcomes are and how effective it really is. And uh, and you know, I would I would point everybody to the video on your website which explains PBL, saying you know we haven't redesigned our education system for 124 years. Probably is <laughs> about time to have a look at it. But why? did you choose PBL? A lot of people prefer to kind of keep these very rigid systems where they can kind of tick boxes with um, neurodiverse students. So it makes it kind of easier for them. But what's your experience with your PBL framework and your neurodiversity in your school and also with your teachers? Because obviously the big question is, it's all interconnected, finding teachers who are also comfortable to deliver within a PBL framework and also have that that time and that care to be able to, to nurture the students through that. Yeah, that's a great question. So I just wanted to start by saying that, yes, the education system has not changed for many, many years. But equally within that, the SEND system is hugely um, underserved in the UK. There's been no change to that since 
obviously the curriculum itself was introduced and alongside that you have a whole legacy of thought and practice that kind of stems from the Warnock report for example where um, it was thought that inclusion was the solution to children's learning so you have many many layers both within um, pedagogy and teaching and learning and assessment but also the political system itself which has really served to kind of create a system that doesn't serve our children or young people particularly well. In fact, I would go on to say, if you look at the statistics of them, which are shocking, that it actually fails them. And we know that I think um, that the data in terms of children and young people that have been failed by the education system, I think something, it's, it costs the state billions, it costs more than um, unemployment that is, uh, costs more than cancer, I think strokes and heart disease put together. I think it's something like £32 billion and it was a study that LSE did. So if you look at those outcomes, why wouldn't you go back to the beginning and say, what can we do to change them? What's wrong with the system? And that was what kind of led us to kind of think more deeply about um, the school day itself. And if you look at what happens within a traditional school, all of our subjects are taught in subjects, you have maths, you have English, you have science, they're taught in silo, every lesson lasts for 40 minutes. You know, if you're super interested in something, it doesn't matter, you have to stop when that bell rings and you have to switch your brain into gear, into that next subject. Um, the way that we assess in the UK is based on standardized a standardized test, um, an average, which for many children or young people, um, it's about delivering um, rote knowledge that isn't always relevant to the outside world. And that exam um, diminishes or celebrates um, a young person's self-esteem and self-worth based on um, what their results are. So when you put all of that together and you think about what really is the purpose of education, for us, you know, we, we couldn't set up a secondary school and just do something that was the same because it just wouldn't have done our children and young people justice and their outcomes would have been no different to, to some of their peers. So we started, um, goes back to our horizon scans, looking at what was happening across the world. Um, at the time, um, I'd been recommended a book called An Ethic of Excellence by a very well-known um, educator um, called Ron Berger. And in this book, he makes a case that when you leave school, you don't really go into a work environment and start sitting a set of exams. You know, people um, judge you on the type of person that you are, your character, and the quality of work that you produce. Yet when we look at what happens in schools, that doesn't really happen. You have exams, you have standardized tests, you, um, your knowledge doesn't often relate to the real world. It just relates to a curriculum that is often intangible and very outdated. So those were kind of all of the arguments for we need to do something differently. And we could see that there were hundreds of schools in the US doing project-based learning. And there weren't many special schools doing project-based learning, but for our children and young people who do learn differently and who experience the world in a different way, we knew that um, experience bringing the real world into the classroom and having authentic um, questions that they had to solve, we felt would make them more excited. It would immerse them more. Um, it would enable them to go deeper into topics um, and fully understand them rather than breadth with, with kind of 
less um, questioning and iteration and um, pulling things together. And it just, it, it, you know, all the evidence pointed towards this being absolutely appropriate for our children and young people. And that's not to say that we believe project-based learning is the answer to everything. We believe project-based learning is the right vehicle for our children and young people to experience learning and the real world in a way that is meaningful and that enables them to acquire skills, to acquire qualifications, to have meaningful relationships with each other and with the teachers um, who are supporting them and for them to develop a sense of confidence in themselves, which traditionally wouldn't happen in a mainstream school. It's so important what you're saying. And I've, you know, something dropped and I've been working in this area for so many years and also have you know, three neurodiverse children myself and know how passionate they are about things that, that they like and they're interested in, but how how difficult it is to motivate them when they're not particularly interested in something. So when you said to me, well, PBL kind of, it looks at what their passions are. It, it looks for their strengths. It also helps them root things in the concrete in kind of what's actually happening in the real world. When all of us kind of tend to think that PBL is abstract, actually, you're right. It's not abstract at all. It's really concrete, rooting it in things that are around us and rooting it in the real world rather than things that may or might not happen or have happened or are theoretical. So in that way, it makes so much sense to do PBL. But I guess the challenge is when you're running a school and you have challenges um, with students who learn differently, a lot of teachers and leaders will say, well, you have the behavior issues, you have the, you know, it takes so much more time and we have to get things done. And what, what are your thoughts on that, on those kind of objections to implementing? I think the first thing is um, Gesher is built on attachment theory. So we know our students profoundly well. Um, and they know each other profoundly well. We are a community of learners. And I think that enables us to ensure that student voice, um, teachers being able to openly also be learners in the classroom themselves, um, encouraging our students to take risk. That sense of really knowing your community means that actually being able to personalize the project-based learning is easier for us to facilitate. I do understand that point around time. That was probably one of our biggest challenges as a special school was looking at everything that we needed to live within the school day because it, it's not just about the knowledge and the curriculum, it's about each of the therapies that our children needed to, to access both individual, individually sorry, and collaboratively. Um, it's about weaving our Jewish curriculum into um, our curriculum as well. And also um, life skills um, plays a huge part of what we do at Gesher. So if you take all of that, and then you think about the time that our teachers actually need to talk about the school day, to be able to reflect on what's happened in the classroom, to have a space where they can share any of the challenges or things that they want to celebrate, it was super tricky. And I would say that's still a work in process um, and will continue to be. We don't have the perfect solution to everything. We're on a journey ourselves as a school. And um, I think that's a really important point to note, at, you know, for, for other people that are listening. Yeah. And, and you're trying to, you're very much involved in supporting schools around you. And I've, I've signed up and would urge everyone to sign up to your, your newsletter, The Bridge, which is fabulous for anyone involved in inclusion and neurodiversity and, and SEN. And you were talking about 
when when we when we chatted and met at the school about your outreach program what will that look like and what does that look like now so we're currently designing that at the moment the outreach um, will be based on working with other schools that are interested in either life skills or perhaps project-based learning Mm -hmm. or even um, how therapies work on a daily basis at Gesha. And I think we're going to be going into schools and offering that, but also there'll be opportunities for schools or for teachers to come and spend time at Gesha and really immerse themselves in our community um, and have their own kind of direct experience of the school. And will that just be locally or, or is that? No, anyone, anyone. I mean, we've we've had educators visit from Turkey, from Finland, from Israel. I had an uh, email from China the other day. We see ourselves as um, being an open source for people that are really looking for something different, not for the sake of being different, but because they have a set of students whose needs are not being met within their own community. And that's not to say that I believe that Gesha should be replicated everywhere. You know, you know as well as I do that each and every child that is differently able and that learns differently is very unique in themselves. Gesha exists um, as an opportunity for people to understand that change is possible and that actually um, by working as a community, both with each other and locally and globally, if we all share our ideas and um, we share practice, then that wider coalition will enable change in a completely different way. Well, Ali, I was going to ask you about your future hopes for education. <laughs> I think you've, you've probably just answered that. But do you have any other anything you'd like to put out there that you, you hope will, will change the way that we are serving these students at the moment? Gosh, there are so many things that I would like to, to change. I think the first is around the children and young people themselves. I think all too often schools aren't ambitious enough for them or their futures Um, so I think it would be to take the time to get to know the child that is sitting in front of you and really understand what is possible with them and for them to give them a sense of being able to want to achieve and feel confident in the sense of of who they are and what their future could be I think if we look beyond that beyond schools and the system itself that I feel like the pandemic has highlighted for a lot of mainstream parents that the time for change is now and that we should be doing more to make sure we prepare our children and young people for kind of the uncertainty, I guess, of of our futures, of, of both the planet and of society, both technologically and in terms of, you know, ecologically. I think if we were to delve a little bit deeper into the world of SEND, that um we continue to all talk to each other and to continue to work together to ensure system change happens from the grassroots up because in the UK we've had probably six education ministers within the last two years and um, there's a green paper at the moment that is going through government. It's not particularly hopeful. I cannot see change and policy change coming from top down. So I think we need to align ourselves to make that change happen from the ground upwards. Ali, thank you. And I do wish you all the very best in that change. And of course, um, it would be great to to start developing a network of change agents, particularly within neurodiversity, of everybody who wants to make a difference and, and make the, the same level of difference that you're making. So thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us. And I guess we'd encourage everyone to go to your website, have a look, see what you're doing differently. And definitely, I would say, go and have a look at the school. It is absolutely fantastic. Ali, thank you so much.
much for everything that you've achieved and for what you are doing day to day for all those students. Thanks, Angela, for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for another insightful episode with Angela Fairs from Full Circle. And thank you for listening. To get in touch with Angela, check out her website. It's fullcircle-education.co.uk. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.